And so over time, the more and more I talked about it, the more sort of normal it became. This is Caregiver Storyteller, produced by Caring Kind, the heart of Alzheimer's caregiving. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Caregiver Storyteller, a storytelling podcast about Alzheimer's and dementia caregiving. I'm Chris Doucette and I'll be interviewing caregivers to get their stories about Alzheimer's and dementia caregiving. Occasionally, I'll also interview the authors, advocates, researchers, healthcare professionals, and people with Alzheimer's and dementia to hear their stories too. So, are you ready? Here we go. Hey listeners, Chris Doucette here again with a brief message before we begin the show. If you've ever dreamt about running the New York City Marathon, now's your chance. Care and Kind is an official charity partner with the New York City Marathon, and we're assembling a 35-person team to run on November 3rd. We only have a few entries left, so if you, or someone you know, wants to run the greatest race in the world while also raising money for a worthy cause, please visit our marathon website at caringkindnyc.org athletes. And if you're loving this podcast, you can always donate to show your support at caringkindnyc.org podcast. Okay, thanks. On to the show. So my name is Jordana, and I live in northern New Jersey. I'm a relatively new resident there, and my relationship to Alzheimer's is that my mother was diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's around the age of 61. And how did that come about? What, what was the day like? It wasn't really, you kind of know, it wasn't really any different from any other day. I feel like we saw different signs, we took her to her primary care physician, made an, you know, my dad made an appointment with a neurologist, and then we just kind of wait and go for the appointment, and then everything is sort of, you know, inconclusive, right? It's just sort of some kind of MCI or like mild cognitive impairment at that point in time and you just you know what that means her mother had Alzheimer's so it's just sort of a matter of time for the disease to progress. And how did your uh, mom react to her own diagnosis? I don't know we never talked about it it was never a topic of conversation I it was never um I just graduated from college at the time, so I just moved home, and it wasn't—it was never a part of a conversation. It just became the new normal. Yeah, that was just it was life. Mm-hmm. Did does that looking back on it now? Does that feel weird to you, or does that feel like no? That's just how my family operates. Yeah, I don't. Re- sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. I think you see, you know, I've watched Still Alice recently for the second or third time. I don't remember, but. And you see how they talk about the disease and how they have conversations around progress and how she's feeling and what what she feels like and what she's thinking. And there's a lot of open dialogue. Um, I've also listened to some of these podcasts where people say it's just never mentioned or it's just different types of conversations around it. And I don't think there's anything that's right or wrong. It's just the way that we handled it. I just moved back home from college, but I had just also moved out of my parents' house at that point in time. Mm -hmm. So I was living on my own, but I was still living in the same town. So I think, you know, there were, there were these things that we would notice that just seemed off. And when you look back and you have the ability to put all of those together, yes, it seems very, very obvious. But when you're living with it in the moment, they're just sort of frustrating. You know, I'd be looking, I just, because I just 
had moved into my own place, we were looking for furniture. And my mom would repeatedly encourage us to go to this furniture place in this town that had closed. And so she would suggest it and we would say it closed and she would suggest it and we would say it closed. And so it was that kind of repeat conversation, which is very, you know, very traditionally symptomatic of early stages of Alzheimer's. Right. Right. And how, how did your dad respond to that? I mean, did he get frustrated or was he, did he have some unlimited patience? Like where on the spectrum? Where on the spectrum? Well, was he, he ever listens to this? But my dad certainly does not have unlimited patience. Also, uh, not unusual. I would say my dad does not have unlimited patience, typically, let alone um, for things like that. But in general, he, I think, especially once you know, you then have patience. I think at the time it's you kind of think like, gosh, we just told you this already, you know, it closed. We told you that 15 minutes ago, or we told you that yesterday, or, you know, that's when you sort of start to think to yourself, well, I've been saying that a lot recently, or I've been repeating myself a lot recently. And I think in the moment you don't have patience because you think, why aren't you remembering? But once you know, once you have the diagnosis and you have the understanding, your entire mentality and world sort of shifts. Right. And did you get any help to shift your own mentality or your own approach with that from support groups or educations or trainings or anything like yeah, that? Yeah. So I cheat a little bit because my undergraduate degree is in therapeutic recreation and psychology. So uh. no, <laughs> uh, I have the ability to really separate the emotion from it and think about what needs to be done from a very practical standpoint. Um, yes, it's definitely emotional when it's your mother and I'm an only child and a lot of the, I, I feel like the, a lot of the responsibility, um, falls on me and my father and it does, but also I don't have anybody to share that with when it comes to your parents. So we, we did try a, my dad and I went to one support group, um, we, it's like, you know, Wednesday late afternoon. I remember either leaving work early or working from home. I don't remember, but uh, we went there and it was, you know, a young woman leading the support group at a long-term care facility. And, um, my mom, this was in the early stages. And I remember in the room there being myself, my father, and then all of these women probably in their like mid to late seventies whose husbands, um, had Alzheimer's and all they were doing was just really bitching about, it, it just wasn't necessarily a support group. They were more bitching about their care. And I was like, oh, God, this part of being in a support group is being able to relate. And I think we didn't have that ability. And you, know, you should always try things three times. So if you're listening and you have the same experience, don't do what we did. But we didn't go back. <laughs> uh-huh. Good advice. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I remember that vividly. It was very funny. We walked out of there and we just laughed, which isn't nice either, but. Well, if that's if that's funny. your experience, that's <laughs> yeah. what it is. What uh, you know, you have a degree, a, a degree with a background in this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. What did um, uh, and then you tried a support group, but what did your dad do? Did he does he have any kind of health degree or background? And after the support group, what did what did he do? Yeah, so he does not. His I mean, his his degree is in statistics and mathematics, and he. I don't know. Um, we don't really talk about it. 
we still don't. Yeah. 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 So it sounds like he just kind of muscled his way through and, yeah. and did what needed to be done. Yeah. And I think yeah. that he's really her advocate and he's very involved in her care. And I think, and has really developed relationships with people in the, um, in her care during this time. So I think that's also very helpful to mm-hmm. him. Um, as far as being, you know, being that advocate, being very involved, I think that's his way of handling it. Right. There's some sense in a powerless situation. Mm-hmm. It's a way to exert some kind of control, yeah. right. To be a, an, a stellar caregiver, mm-hmm. I suppose. Yeah. What did, um, uh, was he relieved by a diagnosis? Because as her husband, mm-hmm. he should have, you know, he was probably aware that something was going wrong and probably didn't have an idea of what it was. And did the diagnosis at least put into context her behavior? Or did he uh, not express that in any way? He didn't express yeah. that in any way. And we didn't really, he probably saw the expression on my face. But <laughs> We need to get him in here yeah. somehow. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even told him I'm here. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know. I'm not really sure. Interesting. Yeah. And what you said your mom was diagnosed at 61. Yeah. And how many years ago was that? This will be 10 years. 10 years. Yeah. And yeah. has she been living at home this entire time? Is she in a, a nursing facility at this point? How is she doing now? Yeah. So my math is definitely wrong, but I, okay. it's some it's something around those numbers. No one's like, going to hold yeah, you accountable exactly. to this. I believe it was 2009, <laughs> something like that. So this is 10 years, but I feel like I'm not doing the math in my head and she's not. Okay. Um, so she was at home until the fall of 2016, and then she went into a care facility, and she's been there since. And she's been on hospice since June or July of this year also. Oh, wow. So hospice yeah. for the past um, mm-hmm. like 10 years, 10, 10, 10 months. months. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. And has was the how was the transition from home to a nursing facility? And then how was the, you know, from nursing facility to hospice? How yeah. did So it worked out well. Um I you know, the transition was just that you know, you're going to go here, it's going to be a bit like a vacation, you're going to make some new friends. And she never fought. She never put up a battle. She never really, she was always very amicable throughout the entire process. 90% of the time, 95% of the time. I don't ever remember one incident where she was arguing with me, but in general, through all of the transitions, no, she was just very agreeable to everything. That's wonderful because it's not always like that, right? I know. Yeah. And I, I hear these, you know, stories where just the behavior is so out of character or, you know, violent and aggressive. And I, it just makes you wonder why is she so easygoing about everything? I don't know. Well, that's a good kind of departure point for, you know, what was she like before the diagnosis? What is her name, by the way? What's Betty. Betty. Yeah. So what was Betty like? you know, as, uh, as a mom growing up. Well, I remember us talking about this a bit last time, but I mean, she's been sick for now about a third of my life. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, the last time I was at home really for an extended period of time, I was 18. And then she was sick when I got home from college. So from that perspective, I have more of a juvenile 
relationship with what my mother was like in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she was a good mother. She was always there. Um, you know, she took me to gymnastics practice and, you know, dinner was ready and I, you know, she drove me to go to the movies or to see my friends and, but that's, that's what I remember my mom as. I Mm -hmm. don't have. As a mom more than a person. Yeah. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I just look at her. I see her as, as a mom, as a parent versus the relationship that I have with my father now, you know, as an adult, your relationship with your parents are so different. Right. Right. And you can see, you see them as different. You yeah. see them as just individuals with all their flaws and their strengths and, right. and everything. Yeah. What did she, what was she like? I mean, was she, was she artistic? Was she, was she mathematical like your dad? Definitely not mathematical <laughs> like my dad. They met at Rutgers while she, uh, she was working on her master's thesis and she needed help with computers and doing the uh, statistical analysis for her, for her master's thesis. And so my, she was introduced to my father then. And actually, they both have their PhD. And I only recently learned that they met doing their master's, not during their PhD. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I I learned that probably 2018. That was new information. Oh, surprise. Yeah, I yeah. had no idea. Um, but <laughs> With so many so degrees, yeah, it's hard to keep track. <laughs> definitely not mathematical. Um, she majored in English and literature and she was a, she graduated with a teaching degree and was a reading specialist for a while. So not mathematical, um, but artistic, definitely didn't draw. She liked to knit. I remember a lot. Um, so she was very good at sewing, taught me how to sew. We used Mm. to make doll clothes, um, growing up. For my American Girl doll, we bought the <laughs> patterns and we would go out and buy the fabric and then That's sew fun. the dresses together. Um, I still ha- I have her sewing machine, which is really fun. I haven't used it yet. Apartment living yeah. isn't really conducive to that. No, not at all. When I have a house, I will. <laughs> um, but again, it's sort of that juvenile, like that child parent. Um, you know, I know that she really loved talking to her sister on the weekends. They talked, you know, probably once a week on the phone. But I don't really know a lot about her. Do you have you learned more about her from conversations with your dad, or or have you talked to your aunt about her? Do you hear stories like secondhand? No. Is that bad? No, <laughs> I, mean, I, I probably should. Uh, no. I have really. I have it's, cousins I've never met, so yeah, totally, very, I I don't think it's odd very at all. Very few, very little, really. Yeah, no. Interesting. Yeah, it sounds like your dad took on the yeah. burden of caregiving, yes, right? Absolutely. And and I'm I'm presume I presume that he was working during this time. So how did he balance caregiving and work? Yeah. So he wasn't. He retired young at fifty eight. Um, so he had retired and then sort of retired to a lot of volunteer work mm-hmm. and teaching at a university part, teaching statistics at a university part time. So he, um, you know, he was home with her a lot. And then when she couldn't be left alone, um, they actually at her at my mom's suggestion many, many years ago. And I don't remember any of this. I just, I oddly remember the man in our house but they got long-term care insurance so um i remember 
the two of them and this man sitting at their dining room table filling out all the paperwork. So once my mom couldn't be left alone anymore, they were able to get a caregiver in the house or, you know, a companion in the house per se to just supervise her. And then after, you know, when that wasn't enough, that was when we really decided to, um, to move her to a care facility. And was that weird for you to have a, a, another person in the house? Well, at that uh-huh. time, I was living abroad. Oh, okay. So yeah. I was not even local. Right. Um, was it probably not weird for my dad? Because the person wasn't usually there when he was there. Mm-hmm. Um, when he was home, you know, he was able to, to right. care for her, at least right. keep an eye out for her. Right. And, you know, she wasn't, per se, wandering off on her own just randomly, mm-hmm. especially when he was home. So there, was, that wasn't really... You know, an issue. Right, right. Or intentionally trying to, you know, escape and run away. Yeah. So when he was home, she, you know, he, she didn't need eyes on her all the time, but right. she was fine. Right. And how was the experience for you, like, emotionally? Like, you're, she got sick as you kind of were away, and, um, but she wasn't, you know, she wasn't, um, uh, she, she's still pretty high functioning after her initial diagnosis. Yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, it's the long goodbye, right? It's the long, it's a, it's a long illness. Yeah. And so emotionally, what was that like for you? Has it, has it, do you, like, where were you before? Where are you now? Yeah. How did, how do you process that? Uh, Does it change all the time? It definitely changes. And for a long time, I didn't talk about it. I didn't uh-huh. share it with anyone. You know, I would go to work and nobody knew and, but it, I was also at a point in time where I didn't have, you know, she, or I shouldn't say I was, my mom was at a point in time where I didn't have to let people know because I didn't, there wasn't the potential for me to have to leave. Mm-hmm. And then I think as the disease progressed, that was really when I needed to be more open about it. I needed to share with at least my manager that I have a mother who has early onset Alzheimer's and she's still at home and, you know, things have happened and there have been times where I've needed to kind of drop everything and go home and help my father out or um and so over time the more and more I talked about it the more sort of normal it became I think now and god I know I'm gonna um I'm sure that there are going to be some people listening to this who are gonna think that I'm absolutely crazy but it gets to a point where you think like enough is enough like she has not had a quality of life for probably more than a year now. You know, she's been on hospice for about Mm -hmm. 10 months. And Mm -hmm. so now I just kind of think like, why? Why does somebody have to live like this? Why Mm -hmm. is this something that's okay? Um, And for me, I follow and I read a lot about, you know, assisted call it what you will, assisted dying, assisted suicide, assisted, you know, ending your, ending your life at your own will and what, call it whatever you will, right? And it's very, you know, sort of progressive outside of the United States and it's obviously very controversial, but I follow a lot of that because I think why doesn't, you know, why wouldn't she have had the choice? Like, I certainly want to have the choice. Mm -hmm. I don't want to end up like that. I don't want to live my life like that because that's not, to me, that's not a life worth living. Um... And I don't want to put my family through that. <laughs> you know, I don't want my children, yeah. if that's me, I don't want my children to have to experience and feel what I felt. 
And I think it's a, it's a really hard topic for people to talk yeah. about. And I have no issue talking about it. I don't know. Maybe it's just based on my experience or it's something that my family has always been very forthcoming about. You know, Jordana, here is all the information that you need. If I pass first, this is what you need to do. This is who you need to contact. And these are the consequences if mom passes first. And then, uh, and then I pass shortly after. Here's still what you need to do. This is who you have to contact. You know, here, here are all my passwords. This is the account information and, you know, go take care of it. And it's a very sort of unemotional, very practical approach to something that's going to happen to every single one of us. Um, but yeah, it's a very difficult topic for some people. And I think I may, you may as well talk about it. You may as well make that process as easy as possible for your survivors. Um, you know, you hear people who don't have a will and I just think maybe you don't want to talk about it, but unfortunately the consequence is that right. your next of kins are then going to need to deal with it and it's going to be such a hassle for them while they're also dealing with their grief versus just having some kind of information laid out and make their make their process as painless as possible. But you know, people people can make their own choices. How do you feel? Um, does your father also follow this kind of uh, train of logic with you? And um, does he feel at all burdened by, you know, what decision should he make and how should he make it? No, because that's always been outlined from day one. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, they have had, and, and that's the other thing, they have had wills probably, I don't know if they've had them before me, but as long as I can remember, they've always had a will. And they've always talked to me about what their wishes are and what they mm -hmm. do want to have and don't want to have. And all of that is specified out in... Uh, their directives, but it's always been documented. But they would talk, to, they, not only did they document it, they would talk to me about it. Yeah. And I yeah. think that made a big difference too. Good. If your mom has been on hospice mm -hmm. for 10 months, um, do her doctors have a prognosis of any kind? Do they, how long did they think she has to yeah. live? I, I guess she, well, she doesn't go to the doctor anymore. They have mm -hmm. the sort of doctor in the nursing home. Um, I have no idea. Yeah. I'm not even really sure that would be a question that I would ask or I, you know. Yeah. It's like cross the bridge when yeah. you get to it. Yeah. yeah. Has your dad voiced, um, uh, 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 you know, is there, is there any ever language like, you know, after your mom passes, this is, I've decided to do certain things or is it really just living in the moment right now and worrying about crossing that bridge later. Yeah. So we've briefly had short conversations about it because he still lives in the house that we grew up in, you know, mm -hmm. five bedroom house in the mm -hmm. suburbs with a half an acre of lawn that he loves to take care of with, but also we don't, you know, he lives there with his dog and occasionally my dog. Yeah. So he doesn't need a house that big, right. but it's also close to where my mom is. Yeah. Uh, do he and I have those conversations? No. I think I secretly hope that he will eventually sell the house and then move out to the beach or move somewhere that, you know, he would enjoy doing activities or, you know, maybe down to LBI, but he also likes to teach. So he'd need to kind of find some kind of location that's close to the things that he enjoys and mm -hmm. can also have, the, you know, the life of his own that he wants to have. But um, we don't talk about that a whole lot but eventually he'll sell the house yeah yeah we are um we're actually wrapping up in just a minute 
Uh, but before we do, if you were to meet someone mm -hmm. who is currently going through the caregiving experience, what advice would you have to give them? I have a couple bits of advice. I think the first is you need to have, as soon as you get the diagnosis, you need to have a plan. So my dad and I really took the time to decide, you know, where, what is our plan going to be? When it's time to put her in a long-term care facility, where are we going to put her? Um, and so we drove around New Jersey and we visited a number of different places and then ultimately we made the decision. And I think being able to do that when you don't need it is a really important thing to be able to do because you approach it and you look at these, you look at the location with not only a more critical eye, but you have an awareness of, you know, what's good versus what's bad as opposed to some kind of desperation. I think the other um, bit of advice too is one of the one of the things my dad would always say to me when I would talk to him about I think it's time to move her into um, a nursing home was just around well I don't think it's time and this was sort of where I used my education versus well how do you know when it is time a lot of times people don't know when it's time until something happens and I think it's usually some kind of event or some kind of um, whatever it might be for us it was she had like wandered off and was found 12 miles down the road in the new brunswick train station a uh, bus bus depot with the dog she'd taken the dog out for a walk and got lost and i think you know it's those are those are the events that you want to try to avoid to happen so you want to kind of make decisions ahead of when they're actually necessary uh, because you're never really going to know when it's time to make a decision or to past a certain milestone unless there's something specific that you're that happens and you don't want you want to avoid getting to that point um, and the other thing too is you need to have a life of your own and I think it's being a caregiver 24 7 does not allow you to be able to do that and I think it's important to make sure that you focus on self-care in some way that you have the time to do that you think about yourself what's important for you and not just the individual who you're caring for. Self-care, always a good idea. Yes, it is. Jordana, thank you so much for telling your story. Thanks, Kurt. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to share your story, go to caringkindnyc.org slash podcast. Maybe we'll use your story on the show. We'd love to hear from you. Please subscribe to this podcast and leave some glowing feedback. We love positive reinforcement. I'm Chris Doucette, and you're listening to Caregiver Storyteller, produced by Karen Kind, the heart of Alzheimer's caregiving.